transitions are exhausting. So many things change, you end up feeling lost. You can find yourself questioning your relevance and even your worth. Whether you're gaining a new surname or going to a new situation, there are two things I want you to know. First, your roles in life will change, but your purpose is eternal. Second, God has a plan for your life and the enemy has a plot against that plan. I'm Sherry Fletcher, and this is Your Spiritual Game Plan, the podcast for those in a season of transition, and I'm so glad you're here. Stick around, and let's work on a spiritual game plan together. Today, I will be speaking with Stephanie Roussel, the founder of Gospel Spice Ministries. Her motto is, God's glory, our delight. Stephanie is a mom, wife, podcaster, public speaker, and Bible teacher. She is also 100% French, born and raised in France. Stephanie thrives on Bible-centered, inspirational writing and speaking and dark chocolate. She's been teaching scripture to thousands over the last 20 years in France, the UK, Africa, and the U.S., and now to thousands more on all six continents through her Gospel Spice podcast. So pull up a chair and join us at the table. Stephanie is going to share the gospel with some new spices, and she's going to invite us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Bonjour, Stephanie Rosel. Comment allez-vous aujourd'hui? Ça va très bien. We can do this whole thing in French if you want. No. <laughs> That's about is it for me. I know. Comment allez-vous aujourd'hui? I know. Je suis fatiguée. Et vous? <laughs> Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. I wish I knew more French. I studied Fran French for about six weeks in uh, France. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. And I, I'm glad to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? Here, doing very well. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today. I would love it if you would give us a little opportunity uh, to get to know you better. Give us a little personal information on what, what's going on with you right now and, and what's, what's currently happening in your ministry. Oh, what a sweet question. Uh, well, we're in the middle of launching uh, the second half of a season. with. So my ministry is called Gospel Spice, and there's a, we're a nonprofit organization, and we provide uh, in-depth Bible teaching to equip our generation to delight in God in fresher, deeper ways. And uh, actually, we're launching this September the second half of our series titled God's Glory, Our Delight. The first half aired in the spring, and then we had a lot of really amazing guests over the summer. And then now we are digging back into what it means to delight in the glory of God and how it can really spice up your life in ways that are completely unexpected. So that's what's happening right now. So we're in the middle of launching that. That is wonderful. So I have a question I ask every guest on the show, and I'm excited to hear your answer. I'm looking back on your life. How far back can you look and see the very purpose you are living out today in who you have always been? That is such a good question. God does love to weave our personalities and our purpose together in ways that are so unique to each one of us. And so I think when we discover the handprint 
uh, of God through our stories. It's always, it's always such a fascinating thing. And the way he weaves even his fingerprints, his unique fingerprints on each one of us. It's a, it's a, such a good quest to be on as believers to, to see his, his hand at work in our lives. And so, um, for me, well, I, it was many years before I became aware of God's handprint on my life personally, because I grew up atheist in France. So, you know, a lot of the typical things you can think of are probably accurate, very intellectual, middle-class family, reading a lot of French philosophers, uh, none of them, none of the Christian ones. I've discovered a lot of very deep, thoughtful Christian philosophers since then. But at the time, even when we would in school study what a lot of Christians would consider Christian philosophers, we would study the more secular parts of their works and not so much the Christian parts. And so um, I had read Blaise Pascal, but I had never read the parts that are really more the theologian Pascal until much later, for example. So very uh, intellectual atheism. I had embraced it as my own worldview personally. And I came to the U.S. as a foreign exchange student when I was 17 in order to learn English because I wanted to be in business. And so... It just so happened that I ended up spending my year in a Christian family. And uh, that was okay for me because I thought a lot of, you know, Americans would be culturally Christians, like going to church for Christmas and Easter. So there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but the thing is that they are, they were so sold out for Christ that that combined with my first encounter with the Bible for real and not through the lens of, again, my atheist philosophers, but through an actual encounter with the Bible and the, the revelation of who Jesus is led me pretty quickly to realize that, uh, the resurrection was a historical fact that had actually happened, which is the very uncomfortable truth for an atheist to accept. Because if you're an atheist, by definition, you don't really believe in the resurrection. It doesn't work together. And so that threw me in a bit of a um, quandary for some time and led me to reconsider what, again, a lot of the 19th and 20th century French philosophers would argue, which is a completely postmodern, post-truth philosophy of truth being completely relative. But the thing is, you can't uh, deny the resurrection unless you embrace relativism and you decide that, you know, your truth, my truth, and that all works for everyone in different ways. And you can remain an atheist and be happy with people who believe in the resurrection as long as you are completely embracing a post-truth philosophy, which is not something that worked for me. Because God, in you know, speaking of handprints, God has woven into my heart ever since I was a little girl um, a passion for intellectual integrity, meaning by that, that I really value truth. I can't just set it aside. I, I've never been much of a relativist person, even as an atheist, because I just really believe that truth is something that matters. And that is something that God placed in my heart. That's really part of my DNA, spiritually speaking. And that, as again, as an atheist, it's a very difficult place to be when you are confronted with the truth of the resurrection. So I could either bury my head in the sand and embrace relativism, or I could do something with what I had discovered to be factual truth. And that's where God terrified me, because Knowing that the resurrection happened, Sherry, is one thing. Um, deducting from that that God is a loving, trustworthy force or being, that's a completely different story. 
And so I wasn't sure I was willing to commit my entire life, control freak that I was, and quite arrogant too, that I was willing to to surrender all of my life to a God that obviously existed and obviously was linked to Jesus Christ somehow through the resurrection, but whose love and trustworthiness were not quite obvious to me yet. And so that's where the Bible came in and discovering God through the person of Jesus Christ was essential. And that led me to really um, this fork in the road where God, not in so many words, but later on I realized what he was doing was that he was wooing me to experience who he was, who he is. And by that, I mean um, what actually became my entire ministry, taste and see that the Lord is good. He was telling me, well, you're considering rejecting me but you've never actually tasted whether I'm good. You've never tasted and seen whether the Lord is good. So um, it's just like really good chocolate, right? You can't reject. I love really dark, 85%, 90% chocolate. Yes. Um, if you have never tasted really yummy, high quality uh, French European chocolate, I would humbly and respectfully suggest maybe you've never actually tasted really good chocolate. Maybe, you know, I currently live in Pennsylvania where there is this huge brand of chocolate, quote unquote, that to me, it's, I'm not going to name them because they do all sorts of good things, but I don't know that it qualifies as chocolate. Maybe it qualifies as very, very sweet sugar candy with this brownish color on top. I don't know, but it's, <laughs> and, and you know, it's, and they're very good at marketing and a lot of people love them and put them on all sorts of peanut butter candy and stuff, but I'm not sure it's chocolate. And I'm saying this, you know, obviously with uh, a lot of self-deprecation here, but if you if that's all you've ever had and you call that chocolate, I'm not I'm not surprised if you don't like chocolate. And so in other words, my point is God was saying, well, maybe you've never tasted what it's like to to trust me, and that's why you're terrified of it. And just like 85% chocolate is a bit of an acquired taste, in some ways, God was saying, well, maybe a relationship with God is a bit of an acquired taste and you have to try it. So taste and see. And if you don't like it, then that's fine. Move away. But at least give God a chance. And so you see, that is a very humble, I mean, God really wooed me to himself in a very um, in a way where I can take no credit whatsoever. So I have a very humble approach because I know that God has done all the wooing and he allowed my heart to be wooed by him. So it's entirely his, he gets all the credit and I happen to get all the delight uh, in, in the relationship I have with him. So to taste and see, it was like, okay, I'm going to... Um, for one week, I'm going to taste if I like, you know, being a Christian, if I like believing what I know in my in my head to be true somewhat, but that my heart is terrified to accept. So that led to a week of embracing uh, belief in in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior in a way that was the most peaceful and freeing experience in the world where I could stop fighting what I intellectually knew to be true and embrace it with my heart. I could taste I could relish the experience of delighting in God and I could truly just find him truly delicious. Actually, in French, the word delight also means delicious. It's the same word. So in my French brain, delight and deliciousness are actually one and the same thing. Therefore, taste and see that the Lord is good takes on a, a deeper meaning in that sense because it truly is an experience for the five senses and also for the spiritual senses of, of delight. And so... 
that was uh, that was almost 30 years ago what that led me is to experience god definitely from an intellectual perspective because becoming a christian has nothing to do with checking your brains at the door as so many people would have you think but instead it's actually the most enthralling intellectual quest of a lifetime because it also involves 100% of your heart. And it's not just head knowledge, but it's all a full experience of tasting and seeing that he is good. And all of that goodness means to us throughout our lives. doesn't make for an easy life, but it makes for a good life, which is different. So that's kind of the backstory of how God wove uh, my intellectual curiosity and my love for truth with a desire to experience him in ways that are just... Uh, so good of him to do. So this was almost 30 years ago. And today, Gospel Spice, which is the ministry that I run, is really hearkening back to those days of encouraging our generation to taste and see that he is good, to move away from a shallow, stale Christianity, where all you feel is that when you're opening your Bible, it feels like reheating stale leftovers that have no taste, that you know in theory should nourish you, but there is no delight, there is no pleasure, there is no tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And so we reintroduce uh, interesting spices into your experience of scripture and into your experience of intimacy with God. And we do that by reminding you through familiar passages of the beauty and the depth of what the Lord intends to communicate to you and the delight that he challenges us to take in him. So can you give an example? Because that's what I was going to ask you next was, you know, for example, familiar spices. So when I think that way, I kind of go metaphor my brain thinks metaphor. So for me, I, I, you know, I'm so used to just opening up the cupboard and pulling out the garlic salt, <laughs> open the cupboard and just do the same thing and go away. Um, but I listened to a podcast where you introduced me to a new spice. I had never heard of it. And it might be the same meal, but a different spice just makes it taste so different. So give us an example of like a same old scripture that we might just think about all the time, but adding a different spice opens that up. Yeah, sure. Um, and I agree with you. I think it's important to mix spices and to be introduced to different spices. That's where the role of fellowship among believers really matters because we all experience God in our own ways, the way we, he wired us, as you were saying, since we were little and all the way back to our earliest memories. And so um, when I experience God through your eyes, I learn and I'm being enriched and I fall in love with him more. And that's why we need one another. And so um I think it's it's more uh, rather than just sprinkling fresh spices on top of an existing meal. I think there's it's more the idea of discovering new meals that might be there, but that might not be obvious at first, like a buffet, maybe. And you have to it, it's not very obvious all that's there at first. And you have to experience all the various things. One of my favorite examples uh, and I have so there's so many possibilities, but one of my favorite ones has to do with um, in the Gospel of Matthew in particular, which is where we spent roughly the first, I think, nine months or so of Gospel Spice a few years ago. We went through the Gospel of Matthew because he's the most Jewish of all the four gospel writers. And therefore, the Jewish culture is such a powerful spice that if you add it to your experience of scripture, you just get 
levels of meaning that our Western culture has completely forgotten. So one, one of the spices we love to use is this first century Jewish culture when we read the Gospels, and that helps us understand a lot of the context of what's happening. Uh, and for example, it's interesting because uh, right, right after I think we had finished the Gospel of Matthew, uh, The Chosen came out with their first season. I'm a huge fan of The Chosen, mm-hmm. the, the TV series. And um, they do the same thing. What they do is that they bring a lot of first century Jewish culture as a spice to enhance your experience of the life of Jesus and the life of the disciples. So, so I kind of love their approach as well. One example is uh, in when you, and it, you know, we're in September, so we're kind of far away from it. But if you uh, think back of Palm Sunday, which is one of my favorite days of the whole year, on Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. We all know the story and we know that people lay down their coats and that Jesus just rides on this donkey and he's entering Jerusalem on the, the, the day before the beginning of his last week. And um, that's it. You know, what is there to discover? They are welcoming him as the king of the Jews. And in five days, they're going to scream, crucify him. But what's interesting is that starting especially in the Gospel of Matthew, starting with the triumphal entry in Jerusalem and all the way to the resurrection as Matthew narrates it, he actually um, spices things up for his Jewish audience, which is the original audience. You need to remember, Matthew never thought that you and I would be reading what he wrote. He really was writing to people he knew or people he didn't know, but people who shared his culture, people who were first century Jews, very different from us. And so there's a lot of his own culture that he didn't need to explain to them because they took it for granted. For example, before you and I started recording, you told me that you were drinking a smoothie. You didn't have to explain to me what a smoothie is, but if you met Matthew, you probably would need to explain to him because he has no idea what a smoothie is, right? Or, you know, if I told you I just Googled something and then I went to Starbucks and then I dropped by, you know, I used an Uber to go to the Airbnb that I'm staying at. Like, these are all words and concepts that we don't need to explain to one another. But again, these are all completely foreign to Matthew, let alone the concept of a podcast, right? So we he would we would need to explain those to him in the same way he does not explain to his audience a lot of the nuances because he assumes they understand them. But we don't. And so... Again, from the triumphal entry into Jerusalem all the way to the resurrection, Matthew weaves analogies and metaphors that link back to a first century Jewish betrothal ceremony. And a betrothal ceremony was a covenant between a man and a woman that they took just before they got married. And it was a lot more than an engagement because it had the power of marriage in terms of a divorce was necessary to to break it. So it was like marriage, except that there was no consummation yet. And so um, and the, the bride was still living with her parents as she was getting ready. And so from the triumphal entry onward, Matthew uses uh, the concept of a betrothal ceremony. He clearly presents Jesus as the bridegroom and the believers as the bride. And he does it in a way that is very subtle uh, because a good storyteller will show, not tell. And so he doesn't tell us he's doing it, but he's showing us if you have the cultural eyes to see. And so there's so many elements that he weaves. So then later on, when Paul picks up, having read Matthew, 
and picking up on all of the Jewish betrothal nuances, picking them up because it's his culture too. And he tells us that Jesus is the bridegroom and we are the bride. Paul is actually not inventing a new concept. Yes, he is going back to Isaiah and Hosea, and he's going back to some of the passages in the Psalms that talk about the bridegroom and the bride, but he's also heavily relying on what Jesus did from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, as the bridegroom coming to fetch his bride. And so we, you know, we can go through all the details of how Jesus is really taking all of the steps of a betrothal ceremony. Uh, but that's just one of the ways. So then when you, when you know that and you know to read the clues, then it makes your experience of these passages of scripture just all the more relevant. And it makes it easier for you to position yourself in the story, because you are part of the body of Christ. You are part of the universal church of the bride that he has come to get on Palm Sunday. So that's just one example. Yeah, no, I love it. I was in the story. I was, you know, you just part of it. And so when, you know, if you're a listener and this is all new to you, if you're brand new to the gospel and this seems intimidating, how can you start, how can you see the Bible, um, from like a recipe, like where you're just wanting, like my, I, I'm going back to like my son. I'm thinking I only have one kid that actually wanted to learn to cook, that wanted to sit in the kitchen with me and have me teach him. And um, and I kind of think of it that way. Like you, you can meet with someone and they can show you here's a recipe and you add this and you add this. Now you go and and do it by yourself. How can a new person um, take the Bible and? Um, start with, without being so intimidated with all these flavors and all these spices coming at them. <laughs> yeah, no, I would say, well, um, just taking it slow. Uh, the most important, I would say, would be to really ask the Lord to open their eyes so that they would see what he wants them to see based on where they are in their journey with him, because he knows. And um, I've been reading the Bible for 30 years almost, and I'm sure you have too, and still discovering new things in there that I didn't see before they've always been there you know but i just never saw them or i'm experiencing them in a fresh light so there isn't one way to experience the bible and if it, if you're going through the bible for the first time or if it's a bit of an intimidating uh tool for you then i think you're in a very exciting place and i i'm i'm almost envious of you because there's wow. nothing like experiencing a fresh spice for the first time and experiencing the Bible and falling in love with Jesus Christ through your experience of the Bible is such a unique and extraordinary feeling that, um, you know, I almost envy anyone who's who's discovering that for the first time. And I would say, so ask the Lord to reveal to you what he would have you see at that point. And then um, the Bible is not meant to be intimidating. It's meant to be the gateway to intimacy with God. And so just like you would not be intimidated, intim intimidated to get to spend time with a dear friend or with someone who loves you in the same way, you're invited to dig into the pages of scripture. So it's not meant to be intimidating. It feels if it feels intimidating, then I would say ask the Lord um, why that is so and help uh, have him remove that from you and also hang out with people who have a passion for the word because that's contagious in the best possible way because that's the thing with spice right you yeah. can it, it can smell pretty good from a distance if you uh, walk into my kitchen when i'm cooking dinner there's going to be all smells all kinds of smells even from a distance and so hang out with people who are absolutely 
enthralled with the beauty of the Lord because they will show you even just by imitation, you'll start doing what they're doing and you'll pick up what they do. So hang out with the people who inspire you to delight in God. And that can be uh, people you find at your church. I would I would warmly recommend finding someone who's older in the faith and ask them to hang out with them, mentor you just like your son was spending time with you in the kitchen. Um, and I would say also, you know, listen to the podcasts and read the books that help you delight in the glory of God at, in deeper ways. And you'll never be done. I don't think we ever get to a place where we say, okay, I'm there. Like I've experienced the fullness of God and uh, that's it. I, I, I think all of eternity, when we will have been in heaven 10 million years, we will still be discovering new ways to delight in God. We'll never be done because God is infinite. And he has wired us to delight in him. Actually, I think that's the reason why he created us first and foremost is to delight in him and to enjoy the beauty of relationship. So don't be afraid, yeah. get started uh, and hang out with those among us who just love the Lord so much. Yeah. Um, you know, since I found your podcast and I found your ministry, it just really has opened so many my eyes to so many different parts of the scripture in a different way. And I just love all the metaphors that Christ has to coming to the table, inviting us to the table, you know, the, the, you know, the fragrance, the aroma uh, Christ calls pleasing. And it just reminds me I um, of coming home when I was, you know, in college or whatever, coming home and remembering the smell. My mom loved to make bread and just the comforts of the smell of home. And I even remember you telling a story of, of the family that you had stayed with, of being the way they treat each other in the kitchen, um, you know, the memories of how they were in their home and just the way that Christ uses food and smells on the table to remind us of all the different ways that he nourishes us. And so um, there's just so many metaphors to the spices and the fragrances and the cultures of, of his word. And it just, I don't know, I, I just love that metaphor. And even when I went to school in France, I just remember going to the tables there and the, the way that they ate, they ate much slower and they enjoyed the food. I remember the meal was like three hours. <laughs> it was enjoyable. I think it's, um, you know, again, the reason why we talk uh, why you know why we call gospel spice and why we relate a lot of things to spices or food or experiences of the body really you know mm -hmm. it's because god does that uh, god created us body soul and spirit and these are woven together and new age uh, eastern religions would have us believe that the body does not matter, that the body is evil. That's actually a, also a Greek philosophy called Gnosticism, but um, that, that the body is evil and that true spirituality is dissociated from the body. That is not what the Bible teaches. Jesus uh, was everything but an ascetic monk. He really wasn't. Uh, he obviously was being accused by his enemies of being a glutton, among other things. I don't think it means that he was necessarily gluttonous in the sense of overeating all the time, but he definitely enjoyed a good meal. He enjoyed fellowship because he understands how we are wired because he created us. We are body, soul, and spirit. And um, across all the cultures that I've ever experienced and all the ones that I never will, I think there's the common thread of food as a 
as a place of meeting for people. We commune around food. We have fellowship around food. And um, of course, that's a double-edged sword because food can become an idol in many ways. But if you handle it properly, your body is something that is a very useful, intrinsic part of who God created us to be. Interestingly enough, um, as far as I know, the Christian faith is basically the only one rooted in Judaism, of course, uh, that says that our bodies will exist for all of eternity. We're not going to, you know, have the disembodied experiences in heaven. On the contrary, Jesus, when he resurrected, clearly had a physical body that could eat and drink, and he proved it to his disciples, and so will we. And because we are body, soul, and spirit, we do not want to um, separate what God has united. So it's very important, I think, as as believers that we reconcile ourselves with our bodies, which means because they're the temple of the Holy Spirit, we want to take really good care of them. But um, being spiritual is not moving away from uh, being body, soul, and spirit. It's actually embracing it. And Jesus explains that to us. And therefore, that's why I think spices are important. And um experiences of the body are important and god said taste and see that the lord is good this is body soul and spirit um so that's why experiences in the kitchen that's why the sense of smell is so important to us we all have good memories attached to smell you mentioned your mother's homemade bread uh, we all have those memories big uh, olfactive memories because because that's how God made us. And so uh, if you're if you're listening to this and you, you've been on that journey to try to disembody your spiritual experience, I maybe you've experienced a measure of frustration with that because that's not how God wants you to interact with him. We are body, soul, and spirit. We worship the Lord in body, soul, and spirit. So, yep. So tasting and seeing is important. I love that. Um, so I actually am a vegetarian. <laughs> I've been vegetarian my entire life. And so if I'm going to do any kind of meat substitution, I have to do seasoning. Um, but in our walk with Christ, um, what are some warning signs of, of any kind of substitution? I think I heard you mention um, in a podcast on substitution. And I'd love if um, being able to taste and see that the Lord's good. But what are some ways that we can be aware of anything that is not real in our walk with Christ? That's such a good question. Yeah, we uh, we don't want substitute. And actually, what I was just explaining about uh, this this philosophy that the body is evil, that would be a form of substitution, right? In the sense that we would be replacing um, the real deal with something fake. And again, you know, back to chocolate, you don't yeah. want to replace good <laughs> chocolate with nasty stuff. And nor do you want to do that spiritually speaking, because that's a lot more dangerous. And uh, we live in a world where, again, there are so many conflicting worldviews. And that's a good thing, because that's um, that's just the opportunity for us to disentangle truth from lies and then to be a shining beacon of light in a loving way. Um, so... Some of those substitutions I think that can take place is when we we start saying that um, Jesus is, you know, whenever we start distorting the message of Scripture. So if Jesus becomes less central in your relationship with God, I think that might be the sign that there's a substitution taking place, that uh, if you're substitute Jesus for anything, um, yeah. because that's just not going to work. 
It just isn't. And it's going to, you're, you're always going to replace him with something of lesser value, lesser quality. If you have experienced uh, the perfect spice, you know, in your cooking, you're going to want to go back to that and not change that. Um, for example, there's a lot of, you know, progressive Christianity out there that says that Jesus is um, a good prophet or that you can, mm. um, you can really become a good person if you tie yourself up by the, your bootstraps and just keep trying a little bit harder. And um, that's very dangerous. I'm a very, I used to be a control freak and, um, you know, I call that the curse of the capable woman. Right. Uh, and I think you could relate to that when we are very capable human beings who are able to get a lot of things done, it's very easy to to want to be in charge and to, because it works, right? You can actually get things done. But that's not the Christian life. That's not the surrender. That's not the open floodgates to God's grace and hand of blessing if you try to do things on your own strength. That doesn't mean on the other extreme that you just sit on your couch and wait for God to do everything for you. Because um, as I was just saying to my son, we have a son in, in college and he he's faced with some decisions right now. And he was he was trying to discern how much he should do versus waiting for God to open doors for him, which is a question we ask all the time. And I was telling him, well, it's kind of a bit of both and. It's not either or because God is the one who's opening the doors and unlocking the doors. So picture yourself in a room and you're sitting on the couch and there's several doors all around that room and they're all closed, but some of them might be unlocked. God is unlocking some doors, but if you're sitting on the couch and not doing anything, you're never going to know. You're going to have to you know, get that body up from the couch and walk up to those doors, get, you know, put the your hand on the handle and see if the door can open, if it's unlocked. But if you don't do that, you're never going to know. So you, God requires your cooperation and your participation, but you're not the one who's unlocking the doors. You're just walking through the doors that he has unlocked. You walk your body through that door. And in the same way, we step into what God ordains for us. So he's the one doing it, but he's requiring our full participation. And so either extreme of saying, God's going to do it all. I don't have to do anything or I need to do it all. You know, God help those who help themselves. That's actually not in the Bible at all. So these are two really bad extremes. Um, also, I think another dangerous thing and substitution would be when, um, again, I, I, I think it really goes back to anything that moves Jesus from the center. Because Jesus being fully God and fully man, which is, again, something that we can't comprehend. Because So another substitution would be, um, it would have to all make sense to us, right? That the Christian faith can be completely argued and completely understood. Well, if it could, it meant that your mind is able to contain the fullness of the revelation of God, which means that your mind is a very big box and God fits inside that box. Well... That means the box is bigger than God because by definition, if it fits inside the box, it doesn't work. So there, that means there's bits and pieces of God that by definition escape the box because otherwise that means your box is too small or God is not infinite because we can't even conceive of an infinite box, let alone an infinite God to contain that would contain it. So God is infinite. It means there's, with all of my intellectual, you know, I, again, I love, intellectual quests, but I'm very comfortable with the truth that there's a lot of aspects of my faith that I am just not smart enough 
or my mind is too finite to understand. And that's okay. It's not a way of saying, well, the bits and pieces I don't understand, I just shove them under the rug and I just call it faith and then faith is ignorance. No, that's not the same thing at all. You dig into it with all you got. You do your very best to try to understand, but there's going to come a point where your finite mind is just not going to be able to grasp the infiniteness of the Lord. And that's a good thing because you actually do not want a God that you can put inside a box because that would be an idol. That would be such a tiny, puny little God. That's not the kind of God that's going to help you when you have a big problem in life. You want a God who is bigger than your problem. You want a God who is infinitely bigger than your problems, which means by definition, it's a God you cannot fully understand. And so it's your choice. Either you choose a God that you can fully understand and control and master, but then he's not going to be much help when you have problems that you cannot master and control, or you surrender to a God that is so much bigger, but that means at times he's going to blow your mind and you're not going to understand him. He's going to do for you things that don't necessarily make sense. And he's going to have you walk through doors that you wish you didn't have to walk through. But if he is that infinite, and if you've tasted and seen that he is that good, then he is trustworthy. And that takes us back to the beginning of my story where after 30 years of walking with him, I am fully convinced of his trustworthiness. And he has taken me places I did not want to go, but I trust him. Just like a little girl learns to trust her father when he you know, has her do difficult things holding her hand because he knows better, because he loves you infinitely. He is infinitely good. He's also infinitely powerful. So trust a God that you cannot fully comprehend. That is actually the beauty of heaven. And so when Jesus talks about his father, I think he is so limited with words. And so again, back to, to the cultural context, he draws from culture to make our understanding of God greater, but even Jesus struggled with using words because words are inadequate to describe the infiniteness of God. So again, anything that reduces the size of God in your mind or anything that tells you, well, God is so big, I can't understand him, so I'm not going to try. These again are two extremes that I would um, move away from. I would dig into the Bible. I would dig into my relationships with the people, whether I know or not through again, books and podcasts and whatever, um, to draw on their experience of God to enhance my own so that the goal is to fall in love deeper with God. I want to be able to come back to talk to you, Sherry, in five years or in 10 years and be so much more in love with God than I am today, just like I am today way more than I was five years ago. That's an endless, infinite discovery of the greatness of God. So sorry, I've been rambling, but... No, um, no. <laughs> I, I... This isn't video anymore, but I've been clapping. People can't see me. I keep muting my muting my mic and clapping because <laughs> it's just so. It, yes, I love that. I love that concept that uh, you. Can, if God was small enough that we'd put in a box, I mean, what we? I wouldn't want that small of a God. I love that. Thank you. I needed that today. That was for me. Thank you so much. <laughs> that was wonderful. But, you know, if you think of it in the Old Testament, right? Uh, God warns all the time of people having what they call idols and idolatry. Mm -hmm. And at the time, idols were actual little statues of wood or gold or metal or whatever that they would carve. And God would say, look at you like it's ridiculous. You're cutting down a tree. You're using half the tree to make fire so you can cook your food. So you're using it as, you know, as as wood for the fire. And then the other half of the tree, you're carving a statue out of it. 
And then you're saying it's your God. You're worshiping that piece of wood. Half of the wood was for the fire and half of the wood becomes your God. That makes no sense. And we do the same thing. We okay. we fall into idolatry. So, I mean, I, I have yet to see, you know, statues in people's homes that they actually bow down to and worship. So it's not the same kind of idolatry. But anything that replaces God, anything man-made that replaces God is basically saying either you're you don't think God is big enough to handle your problems or actually God is so big and intimidating that you're afraid of him and you'd rather have the wooden statue version that is so much more manageable, but that is totally lifeless and worthless. And so mm. today's idolatries that we have in our 21st century Western world, um, success, power, sex, money, uh, fame, beauty, uh, brains, bronze, whatever, um, these are all forms of idolatry. So idolatry is alive and well in the world and we are all guilty of it. And Jesus draws us away from our fake little wooden statues of sex, fame, success, beauty, intellect, and he draws us to himself. Mm -hmm. And oh, as you know, there's, there's mm -hmm. just one of my favorite quotes is by Beth Moore. She says, there's no high like the most high. Amen Ooh. to that. There Amen. is no high like the most high. And uh, she's right on. That's exactly right. No, um, I love, I like to play with words and um, idol. The first three letters are I do. Mm -hmm. So when I think I can do it, when I can do it, I do becomes my I doll. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times when I take God out of it and I do it, it's my I doll. And so I always think, okay, when I've taken God out and I do, I've become my own idol. And so that's what I kind of keep in my, my mind. I've made myself my own idol and I'm trying to do it myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're very good at making uh, ourselves, uh, turning ourselves into little gods and uh, we make terrible gods. Oh, no. Thank you so much for adding spice to my day and for talking a tiny little bit of French with me. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. So all the links to find you are going to be in my show notes, but um, you can share a link with me if you'd like. Um, give my listeners a website. But where can they find you? Oh, very easy. Gospelspice.com. Super simple. <laughs> And then uh, right next to your podcast, you can easily find my podcast, Gospel Spice, uh, exactly where you are listening to this from. Right Thank next door. You. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful um, rest of your fall and winter. Thank you. You too, Sherry. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I love Stephanie's take on just enjoying the Bible with all of the different senses through the whole body. I love how God intentionally created us and all of our senses. I really loved the concept towards the end of the podcast where God doesn't want us to fully be able to comprehend all of him. Otherwise, we'd put him in a box with all our other idols and God's so much bigger. That's why he can handle all of our problems. He's big enough to handle everything. Ways to connect with Stephanie are in the show notes. Imagine shifting your focus off of the hard work of trying to prove yourself 
to the joyful life of knowing your worth. When you join my email list, you will get the free mini guide, One Simple Way to Know You Matter Today. It is my prayer that you'll be reminded daily of all the ways you matter more than you know. So head on over to sherryfletcher.com, click join Sherry at the top of the screen. Already a subscriber? Enter your info anyway to get the new mini guide and you will not get multiple emails. Did you know that you can help others start a spiritual game plan for their lives? When you leave a review and share this podcast, it helps me reach others. I do love hearing from you and I want to know how I can serve you in the best possible way. So be sure to subscribe to the emails and leave reviews. Thank you for tuning in to Your Spiritual Game Plan, the podcast. I'll see you next Tuesday.